and welcome to those joining us online. It's always a bit of an awkward transition for me, but it's good to see you all and praise the Lord for this opportunity we have to worship Him in spirit and truth and to read His Word and to consider what God would have to say to us. We're so blessed to have a God who cares, who knows us, and who seeks to have fellowship with us. It's, it's God seeking us, um, and He delights when we seek Him too. So we'll be in Luke 17, starting in verse 20. But a couple of announcements. We do have a roster that's being put together, so if there are things that you'd like to help out with, please, uh, um, I, think, I think there's a physical roster, but you can email Trudy as well with uh, what you're available to do. And also there is a tribe event, so for the young adults, a getaway to Newcastle. And if you're keen and committed, talk to Laura and uh, secure your spot. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all, that you are full of compassion and mercy, and that you're gracious and good. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and give us understanding of your truth. Thank you that you've called us by your grace, that you've extended the gospel to us as people outside the covenant of God, unworthy to draw near to the unapproachable God. You have made it possible through Jesus to know you, to walk in your ways, and to do what's pleasing in your sight. And we praise you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather and to read your word and to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think you would all agree that it's very easy to be overwhelmed um, by all manner of things that happen in life with global pandemics and financial concerns or job issues. Or It's very easy to feel overwhelmed. And with the amount of information and misinformation that's out there, it's hard to make sense of the senseless. And I, came, I heard a new phrase. I hadn't heard it before, but the practice of habitually scrolling through negative news on your feed, it's called doom scrolling. And uh, it says, it's, this is really bad for mental health. When you only immerse yourself in what's wrong or what's uh, a problem, something that's overwhelming and out of your control. You can be preoccupied with anxious thoughts. It erodes um, faith in the Lord and looking to Him. And so it's so important that we guard our minds and our hearts, that we're looking to the Lord, that we're intentional to occupy our minds with the truth of God and who He is, how great He is, and what He's promised us, and how He has loved us, and how His love never fails. And he, he is saving us. He is going to keep us. He will one day present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. And this is, he is to be rejoiced over and trusted in rather than being overwhelmed with how we feel. So our passage follows Jesus as he's traveling to Jerusalem. He's teaching along the way. And earlier in the chapter, Jesus told his disciples to take heed to themselves, that they should forgive those who ask for forgiveness, even if they sin against them seven times in a day. And he said this because our hearts can harbor unforgiveness and bitterness towards people who have wronged us. And it's faith in God, not in that person changing for the better. It's faith in God that... Um, allows us to forgive as he has forgiven us, to extend grace to people. And Jesus showed his power in freeing and um, healing those lepers, cleansing them when they called out to him. They said, Jesus, have mercy on us. And he said, go to the priest and show yourself. And they went and they were cleansed. And it's impossible for us to cleanse someone's leprosy. 
And it's impossible for us to love our enemies and to forgive those who have wronged us from a pure heart. It's only God that can do that. So Jesus did that freely and it's such a good example of his power to do it and the ability he gives us to do what only he can do by his grace, to forgive. Luke 17, starting in verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus often preached about the kingdom of God. It piqued the interests of the Pharisees who looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come, when he would um, rule with a rod of iron, when he would judge the nations. This is a people who were Uh, an oppressed people at that time. They were longing for freedom and for salvation. And and there's Jesus talking to them. They didn't recognize him. And the Pharisees did what we can do. In light of whom they addressed, they were asking the wrong question. Because we live under the constraints of time when weighs pretty heavy on us sometimes. We say, well, when is this going to happen? When is this going to change? What about now? So, Even our language is very tied up in time. After his resurrection, the disciples, remember what they asked Jesus. They said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They wanted to see the kingdom restored. And Jesus answered in Acts 1-7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus doesn't reveal when it would happen, but he said what God would do. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So more important than our eschatology or a timeline of when things are going to happen, it's for us to entrust ourselves to him today to seek to please and, and seek him now. Uh, and Jesus answered the Pharisees, he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is not going to be in a secret or localized area. It is not something hidden that only the pers- the, those who are perceptive will understand. It's inevitable. It is obvious. It is complete. It is total. It's not like when there's a, a fossicker who finds a, a vein of gold and People hear about it, and they go to this one location to, to, to hope to strike it rich for themselves. It will be covering the whole globe. It will be um, everywhere. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. I was looking at the word within, and it's, it's better translated perhaps in the midst of or at your grasp rather than within. So he preached, the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your grasp. It's at hand. It's in the midst of because... I am here. The king of kings am with you. And they didn't perceive it at that time. It's a spiritual kingdom that's established through faith in Christ, but it's also a global kingdom. When Jesus returns to earth and he judges the people of the world and establishes his throne. In one sense, the gospel does establish God's kingdom in our heart, but it is going to be a physical kingdom that he establishes in Jerusalem but it's not just in Jerusalem. It's the whole world. Jesus stands in their midst. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And they imagine this kingdom would usher in glory for Israel, but it would also result in the destruction of unbelievers and the corrupt systems in the world. Continuing in Luke 17, 22. 
Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus turns his attention to the disciples, teaches them concerning this coming kingdom. Three things. The first is that they would long for his coming, but they would not see it. These men and women would suffer for persecution for the sake of Christ. They would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but the time wasn't yet. It would be in the future. The second aspect is that the kingdom of God, it's going to govern every nation and person. It will be public. It will be obvious. It's like at lightning flash that people in the suburb, they all see the light flash across the heavens. They all hear the peal of thunder. It's not a hidden thing. It's, it's evident for all to see. The third thing is that Jesus, the Son of Man, also the Son of God, first must suffer many things and be rejected by that generation. There was a cross that stood before Christ, and he would um, be crucified before the kingdom could be established. Jesus knew he would be rejected by the Jews, that he would be crucified, and it's very important we study this passage and others like it that we resist the urge to try to plug ourselves or the church into the text. Jesus is talking to Jewish disciples before the church was established on the day of Pentecost. Now, Paul explains in the book of Romans that the Jews, having rejected Christ as Savior, they were broken off from the vine, who is Christ, and that Gentiles would be grafted in through the gospel. Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and out of Jew and Gentile, out of the two, God broke down that middle wall of separation. He made the two one in creating the church, where Jesus is the head of that body. And this coming of Christ, it will occur in two phases, the rapture of the church or the catching up of the church and Christ's appearance and physical return to the earth in judgment. Now, the rapture of the church, it's really well explained in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. There's a second passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that tells us after the rapture of the church, then the Antichrist will be revealed. There will be a period of peace. He will claim to be God. He will desecrate the temple. The Jews, so Israel, who had rejected Christ, will recognize this is not the Messiah, and they will come to Christ in faith. They will suffer tribulation a lot of persecution during the Great Tribulation. Paul affirms also in Romans that even as we, as being apart from the kingdom of God, Gentiles being grafted in, so Israel, having been cut off by unbelief, will be brought in. And so we see the wisdom of God in the Jews' temporary blindness, not seeing Christ for who he is, that that allowed an opportunity for the Gentiles to be saved, and the Jews will also come to faith in Christ as well. So we see the wisdom of God in that. Continuing about the kingdom of God in Luke 17, 26, and the judgment. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. 
Jesus now employs two examples in teaching of this day of the Son of Man, a day of judgment for sin. Days of Noah, when the earth was covered in a global flood, and the days of Lot, when God rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and the surrounding cities. Noah, he was a preacher of righteousness. He was directed by God to prepare an ark because God was going to send rain and a flood. It took decades to build. So here's a man who was a preacher of righteousness. He was telling people, he was warning them, and he was demonstrating through his actions that there was coming judgment and that the only way people could be saved is by going into the ark. And people, they ate, they drank, they were married. They were married thinking about their future. It was the same in the days of Lot. When the angels came and told him that God was going to destroy the city, they continued to feast. They were buying properties. They were selling. They planted because they expected to be harvesting. Like, you wouldn't do that unless you said, I'm going to plant, I'm going to put out this expense. I'm going to pay for this labor. I'm going to plant this seed for no purpose at all. Of course not. They did it because they expected to gather something. There was going to be a harvest. Noah warned people about the flood. All who he convinced was his immediate family. When Lot warned his son-in-law, sons-in-laws, they said they thought he was joking. Jesus' point of emphasis is not that some were saved from the judgment, but by flood, by fire, they were all destroyed. Noah and his family were left where the rest of mankind was swept away. Lot and his daughters were left of all that remained was all from Sodom and Gomorrah because the devastation was complete. Continuing in verse 30, Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus showed how that imminent judgment it would accompany the days of the Son of Man. Now, I've never faced a bushfire roaring towards my residence or had a tsunami sweep through the streets of my city. Many people have perished tragically in these situations because they thought they had more time than they did. They went back for one more trip to grab something, and they were hindered. I think of the movie in the Man Man of Steel, the Superman movie, where his stepdad is caught in a tornado because he went back to save the family dog. Now, the person lounging on the rooftop, they aren't to go down into the house. It's, it's, there's going to be a suddenness, and everyone will be responsible for themselves in that day. He's saying the one in the, the field working, you won't have an opportunity to return to the house and get provisions for the journey that will be before you. Uh, you need to ensure your own survival, and you need to be prepared for that moment. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. It's a bit cryptic just to say, remember Lot's wife. And we'll go to that story if you want to turn there to Genesis 19, starting in verse 15. So the angels are sent by God uh, to tell Lot that Sodom would be destroyed. Lot did not share their sense of urgency. We read in Genesis 19, starting in verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, 
the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Had Lot's survival rested uh, his, on his responsibility alone, he would have perished. Right? He's lingering. He's like, all right, God's going to destroy the city. And he's still lingering. He's still, I don't know, pottering around, looking for what he should do, but he, he doesn't have that urgency. And they, it says the Lord was merciful to him. They took him by the hand. He took his, they took his wife by the hand. They took his daughters by the hand, and they brought them out of the city and says, don't look back. Keep going until you reach that mountain and are escaped. Genesis 19:24. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife, she had been led by the hand out of Sodom, but she stopped to look back. And this word look, it's a lingering, longing look. It's to look intently at. It's to regard with pleasure, favor, or care. There was this, oh, like her body was out of Sodom, but her heart and her affections were still tied up there. She looked back at what was being destroyed instead of looking forward unto the safe haven that God had provided and directed her to. And for her sin, she literally became a pillar of salt. She risked her life for that long look. She suddenly perished. It's unlikely that many think the consequences of a fire or a flood or becoming a pillar of salt, that sounds a bit harsh. It sounds unnecessarily harsh even. But because of the wicked nature of sin, it is necessarily harsh. That's how awful sin is. The soul that sins will surely die. And we need more than verbal warnings or someone uh, taking us by the hand. These examples have been provided so that we would remember what happened to the person who, who looked back who was disobedient, who, whose heart was on things of this world and not listening to God. So it's to prevent others from following the same example. It's love that's motivating this remembrance. And he followed with, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. When the sky opened and the floods rose, people fought to save their lives. And I don't even like to think about it very much, but they fought to live. They, they climbed to the highest place. They tried to get away. They couldn't. The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, they never saw what was coming, and they couldn't save themselves. Lot was taken by the hand, and he lost the life that he previously led. He was an elder in that city. He sat in a place of judgment and honor. He had many flocks and herds he had. He had wealth and a degree of respect. The people were not too pleased with him because he was a foreigner. But in that moment, when an angel took him by the hand and he was lingering behind, he needed to decide if he was going to try to save his life that he previously led or if he was going to leave his life and be saved. He chose to walk away from everything without looking back. That's what Lot did. He chose to lose his life. God preserved his life. Mark 8, 34 through 36. 
It says of Jesus, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It's of no value to gain the whole world and all the riches and all the pleasures that you desire and lose your own soul because this world is temporary. Heaven and hell, those are forever. Only those who forfeit their life and their, their dream of what a perfect life is on earth and choose to be led by Christ to salvation through the gospel, those are the only ones who will be saved. All others, they will be taken in inescapable judgment. So right now, Jesus, he lays his hand on top of yours. And he says, will you choose to leave the life that you want for yourself that ultimately is ending in destruction? Or will you lose your life for my sake and receive eternal life? Sin will be the death of us all, but we have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We will escape judgment because Jesus has taken that judgment upon himself on Calvary. It is good to remember Lot's wife because something completely unexpected happened to her, right? Since when has that happened, that someone became a pillar of salt? It seems such a strange thing that it's like, did she look like, like a Roman carved pillar? Or was she just a hulking mass? Did she look pretty much the same but just frozen in time? The simple action of looking back led to instant death, and I think how great is sin before a righteous God. My sin. At any moment, God could hold us to account for our sin and rightly destroy us forever. And that's very unexpected to many people. Uh, the statistics say that 150,000 people die every day. And I'm sure all those people, they have full diaries that go on for months and maybe into the next years. They have plans. They didn't expect it to be today. They, they know it's going to happen sometime, but that it would happen today, it's a shock. So Jesus is saying, remember Lot's wife, taken by the hand, led out of the city, but she looked back. You won't have time for that. If you want to be saved, there's a sense of urgency and a sense of personal responsibility. Lot and his daughters were saved because they looked ahead. Trying to escape from judgment is impossible, but all who run to salvation through Jesus Christ will receive it. Praise him for that. Continuing in Luke 17, verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. In the day of judgment... It will be night for some while others are working in the fields. And in, that, in those days, you worked in the fields when it was day. So it, it will be everywhere simultaneously across the globe. It shows that God's, Christ's return to judge will be a simultaneous event that happens everywhere all at once. I'm reminded of how in the parable of the wheat and tares, the wheat and the tares were permitted to grow together until the day of harvest, until the day of judgment. Uh, one will be taken into judgment, while the other, like Noah or Lot, will be left. 
There's some that suggest these verses are a reference to the rapture of the church. The context, though, is that of judgment. And they say, where, Lord? He answers, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. At a distance, um, you would be able to see the eagles circling. You would be able to see that there's something on the ground before you could distinguish what it is on the ground. You'd have to be quite close to see um, what that carcass is. But you would know because of the circling eagles and because they were descending on something, something is there. And you'd have to go up to get a closer look. And I like what Adam Clark says. He says, where the dead carcass is, there will be birds of prey. Where the sin is, there the punishment will be. I can only imagine how sobering that would be. You have a great expanse of property, and you see the eagle circling. And you're like, oh no, what's happened? And you go out there to inspect, and, and, and you find that it's a person. You don't recognize this person. You don't know how long they've been there, and you thought, who is this? What happened to them? How did they get out here all by themselves? Did they run out of water? What, how do we explain this? How can I avoid this happening to me? Now, Jesus, he's the source of living water. He's standing among them. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who's going to usher in the kingdom of God because we can't do that. He does that. It's his kingdom, and he offers salvation. The God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, who saved Noah and Lot, he gives eternal life and salvation to all who surrender their lives to him in faith. Now we're going to continue in the next chapter, Luke 18, verse 1, because it, it dovetails so well onto what we've spoken about. Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city. She came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Jesus continues with this parable. It's so fitting for people who would suffer persecution injustice. They would do good and they would be hated as Jesus was before them. And they would be punished for trusting Christ. Matthew Henry wrote, This parable has its key hanging at the door. Christ spoke it to teach us that men ought to always pray and to not faint. I love that visual of the key at the door. It's like, here's this is what it's teaching you. This is the... the, the the truth we can glean from it. The parable begins with this unjust judge. It's a man in a position of authority who does not regard man or God, does not fear God at all. It's definitely not the kind of person you want in that role, but uh, because he was upholding, supposed to up, uphold God's laws. And there was a widow in his city, and she demanded justice from her adversary. Now, widows in Jesus' day, they were of low social status, it was nothing for the judge to ignore her claims. I mean, what's in it for him? She's not paying him. She, he, he has no benefits for helping her. 
For a while, he put off her requests, but she was persistent. She would not take his uh, ignoring her for an answer or his uh, dismissing of her case. She kept coming, and he starts thinking about it. Now, notice, it doesn't say that the woman's claim was valid. It's just she kept pestering him, and he's like, you know, this is, if she keeps coming, he was troubled by it, this is no good for me. So purely out of selfish motives, to just get rid of her, he takes care of her case, and he, he makes a decision in her favor. Verse 6, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. He doesn't say when, he says speedily. The parable, it's a contrast of the unjust judge with God. Now many, they might apply this passage to emphasize our need to pray more, your need to be more persistent in your prayer, to make it all about you praying day and night. I mean, Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's true, we always ought to pray and not to faint. However, the main point is not, you need to be like that widow who continually brought her request to the judge. The point is, God is not an unjust judge. Realize who it is you're praying to. The parable prompts us to consider our God who hears our prayers, who loves us, who has chosen us. We are his elect because he has said, you, you're mine. He's chosen us. He's taken us by the hand. He's adopted us as his children. He's giving us these great, exceedingly great and precious promises where he's saying, I'm going to put my spirit within you. And I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. And I'm going to keep you. So it's all about what he's doing. God will avenge his own children. He is patient. He is long-suffering. As he allows us to suffer according to his will, he's faithful to work in us and through us, as we see with Jesus. Now, does it sound strange to you that suffering could possibly be according to God's will? Someone's suffering, we're like, stop that suffering. You shouldn't be suffering so much, and you shouldn't be suffering so long. That's bad. Suffering, bad, right? Like pain. Pain, bad. Chronic pain, even worse. Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, 16 through 19. And I don't want to minimize the pain and the suffering people endure and how how it does weigh upon you. And it is a heavy burden. But we're not to keep that burden close to our hearts. We're to look to the Lord in faith that He will relieve us, He will refresh us, He will redeem it for His purposes. Because we see in Christ, we see, well, in the world, suffering is part of life. We see that Christ, though, His suffering was redemptive. There was a purpose and a plan behind it that God employed. Suffering's common to men, but in Christ we have a balm and comfort for all our wounds, comfort for our souls. 
Now, for Christ's sake, we can suffer, as it says in 1 Peter 4, 16 through 19. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Final judgment, it's coming for all on the day of the Son of Man, but the time has come for judgment to begin with us, to judge ourselves, to look at our hearts. Will we trust God to rejoice even when we suffer for his sake, even if uh, our bodies are, are struggling? and having difficulties, even when there's all these situations that are overwhelming out of our control, instead of being looking to those things, looking to the Lord and what He has done for you and His promises He's made. The God, and to be praying, to, to show faith in praying to the God who loves us, who hears us and saves. Have you considered the goodness and grace of God to whom we pray? And when God doesn't answer us speedily, or we see the answer that we're expecting or hoping for, it is easy to faint and to lose heart, to not pray as we ought. And we look for vindication in ways we can see. We're like, that person has done the wrong thing. I want to see something happen to them, or for, for some, some arbitrary thing to happen so that we'll feel confident that God has, has, so it's really confidence in what we can see, not walking by faith, but by sight. And how often do we pray helplessly as if God is an unjust judge that needs to be pestered, that needs to be uh, continually reminded as if he forgets of what is occurring in our lives? Like we're telling something he doesn't know or that he really doesn't care about us, so we have to remind him again and again and again instead of trusting him and believing him and continuing to pray in that vein, like, Lord, because I am elect of yours, you have chosen me, you have called me, you have filled me, you have blessed me, and you've given me all these promises, then our hearts are filled with joy for who he is and that we have a place with him. He is a just judge. He loves his children. We can't doubt he, that he loves us or not because of the suffering we endure, but it's our lack of faith in him that causes us to quit praying, losing heart. Because Jesus concludes, he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he find people that are trusting him as a child does a father? The challenge that Jesus gives his disciples is to demonstrate faith that God had chosen them, that he did love them, he, was long, he is long-suffering with them, and that he would hear their prayers, he would avenge them speedily, and they could commit their souls to him in doing good, though he bear long with them. There's a scene in Deuteronomy 20 starting in verse 1, where God commanded his people to look to him when they were on the, the eve of battle. And we don't have to be in a physical battle or a fist fight or a, a, a war to feel under attack and to feel overwhelmed and to be afraid. 
This is what God commanded his people in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. The widow asked to be delivered from her adversary. And though our enemies may be many, the things that overwhelm us can be very real and in your face, be on the verge of having to confront them. And we don't like that. That makes us uncomfortable We are not to faint, to be afraid, to tremble or dread because God goes with us. He fights for us and he will save us. Let's pray always. Let's not lose heart. God will without question ultimately take vengeance upon his enemies. But when he looks at you today, does he find someone who has joyful faith and resting in him and what he has done and who he is. No man will escape the coming judgment when Jesus returns, yet he's given us today as a personal day of judgment that we could judge ourselves and look at our own hearts and say, is there in me a heart that is fainting and fearful and filled with dread? Or is there a heart that is looking to God and praying joyfully, thanking him for everything that's happening, even though it can hurt. Let's put our faith into action. Let's praise the Lord. Let's remember our Savior who suffered so that we could be comforted, who was broken so we could be made whole, that he was a king rejected by men so we could be received and accepted as sons of God, as his his sons and daughters by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your, your long-suffering nature and your kindness and that you have called us and that you are um, just powerful beyond measure and yet you have a place by your side. Thank you that Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven and you've given us a purpose here to pray and to glorify and honor you with our lives. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, and I do lift up those who are suffering, who are sorrowing, who are grieving, who are facing overwhelming circumstances and difficulties. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who pray without ceasing. There would be in us a heart um, to trust you. Thank you that you're not an unjust judge. You are a righteous judge. Thank you that you will preserve those you have purchased with the blood of Jesus, that you have redeemed us, that you are saving us, and we will someday be glorified with you. And we rejoice at the thought to see you face to face. And uh, we don't have to ever have social distancing with you. We can just draw near to you, and you will sweep us up in your arms, and you will hold us close forever. And Lord, we thank you for the comfort that we have in Jesus Christ. And for your presence that you've placed within us, the down payment that shows we are yours and you've made us fruitful and set us apart for your good purposes. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people today, that we would be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might, that we would not be afraid, we would not be filled with dread 
or worry or the cares of this world, that we would lose our lives for your sake and in doing so be saved and find the real life, the enduring life that is Christ. Thank you, Lord, again for your faithfulness and your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.